0: Well, please remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. This morning I'm going to read verse 44. And before I do so, and hopefully open that text up to us this morning, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Upon us, let's pray. Now, gracious Father, we come now to the preaching of your word, and we come to ask for your blessing upon it. We come to ask, O oh Lord, for you to do a great divine inward work in all of us. In each of us, open our spiritual eyes of faith to see and understand the text, open up our hearts. To receive it. And Lord, like the text says, let us experience, Lord, a continual joy, Lord, that comes in knowing Christ and His love for us. Lord, we ask that you would bless now the preaching of your word. Let it be a spiritual work of the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet that he might teach us the heavenly kingdom, its ways and how it is spread throughout the earth and its impact that it has on each one of us here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Now, beloved, uh, verse 44 of Matthew 13, hear the word of the living God. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And thus ends the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Now, the first thing that I want to do this morning is put to rest any fear that you may have that Pastor Stanfield is not going to be able to make much Out of this one verse, I assure you it is a small portion of the Word of God. However, it is big in meaning and implication. So I think we're going to be here for a few minutes. This parable, like the others demonstrate, they show us something about the kingdom of heaven in the world that we live in. Throughout this teaching, I have hopefully set forth this important principle that the kingdom of God in its, in its essence in, its, in the simplest understanding is the rule of God. That's in its simplest definition. The, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is the rule of God. It's the rule of God in the earth. It's the rule of God in your heart. It's where Christ has set up his kingdom and that kingdom is being perpetuated, it's being sown, it's being propagated, it is spreading throughout the world that God created by the very word of his power. These parables come on the hills of serious confrontation with the Pharisees. I don't think it's accidental that Jesus begins to teach the crowd in the parables before us, these seven parables, just after these the accusation that is made from the scribe and Pharisees of looking back just a chapter. What do we see? We, we see that Jesus is being um, accused of being the devil or in league with the devil. Uh, his Those Pharisees, they, they, they really don't know what to do with Christ. They're jealous of him him and his ministry. He's working great miracles along the way that everywhere he goes and preaches, he is performing healing miracles and the people are astonished at him. And it has aggravated and it has incensed the Pharisees to, 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 in malice to rise up and to be his enemy. And therefore, they are trying to cast shadow upon the power of Christ by saying that he does so because he's in league with the devil. And Jesus confronts them. He just, dis- he just dispels that idea by saying a house cannot be divided with itself and stand. If I'm in league with the devil then obviously I am destroying the house of the devil because that's what I've come to do. He had caused such an uproar. I mean, he had created such, or at least... His presence and teaching, his, the, the manifestation of Him being the Son of Man, the promised Messiah, as He went about performing these miracles had caused great controversy among those who envied and those self-righteous who envied His popularity. And Jesus was going about and He was warning His disciples of this enemy But he tells them, he says right there in chapter 12, verse 30, he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Now, you can imagine the controversy that statement made among the hearers of Christ. Jesus was performing these miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they just accused the Holy Spirit of being the devil. And Jesus told them that this this sin against the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. Now this word caused such a ruckus that even his mother and several of his siblings tried to come and speak to him about this. They wanted to come and, and, and just, you know, calm him down a little bit. Jesus, they don't like you. They hate you. They're coming for you. They're conspiring against you. We're coming to you to, uh, you know, talk you into some accommodation, get you to compromise a little bit, settle down a little bit. Don't make so many big waves when you go about the countryside doing your work. And Jesus doesn't even give them this hearing. He doesn't want to hear this. In verse 50 of chapter 12, as he began, listen, this is what is leading us into this study of these kingdom parables. He says, "For whoever does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother." obedience. Obedience to what? Well, obedience to the Word of God, the commandments of God obedience to those things that we are called to do as the children of God, as the citizens of the kingdom. Jesus is very clear. He's not ambiguous. He is not vague in the, in, in, in the least. He is saying, if you want to be my family, my family is known by their obedience to the revealed will of God. And then he, then what does he do? That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea and large crowds gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd was standing there. And what does he begin to do? He begins to unfold to them the kingdom of God in the first parable of addressing the sower and the fields and the four kinds of soil. And Jesus Begins, if what, teaching us historically, what this is how the kingdom of God comes to the earth. It is sown in the preaching of the Word of God. And those who really receive that kingdom preaching and receive into their hearts these gospel truths can be identified by the fruit that they bear. They are fruitful. Fruitful is just another biblical description of someone who is obedient. Walking in, as we confessed this morning, the love of God. That our love for God is manifested in our lives by our desire and joy to walk in accord to the word of God. They're very, it's subjective and objective. That love resides in us and it flows out of us in obedience. He goes on to teach us that the kingdom of heaven has always suffered enemies. And the parable of the wheat and the tares, is, if you will, serves as another microcosm of redemptive history. I mean, we could start with Cain, can we not? Why did Cain kill his brother, a a member of the church? Well, John tells us why. Because his brother's deeds were righteous and Cain's deeds were not. The expanse of the kingdom, that even though this kingdom seems to be small in that there's a small group that, that, that only embraced the word of God in reality and this kingdom suffers great enemies all throughout the history of it. It prevails, it overcomes, it's the, the kingdom of our Lord. It will permeate, it will grow, it will not be stifled, it will not be cut down. And every time it has been cut low to the ground, another shoot springs up. And God continues to water, nurture, fertilize, and preserve the shoot and to bring it to maturity. All along the way, establishing the clear understanding that it's the power of God in the earth that we call the kingdom of God, the rule of God, that heavenly reign and rule that is present in this world even when it looks so dark, so upside down, and so absurd. I moved over, passed over the parable of the leaven. We will come back to that before I finish this series. And this morning, I want to continue this thought that I've just laid out before you that this parable of the hidden treasure continues the themes that I've just spoken of and it continues to highlight them in another concise and powerful way. Notice the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Now, on its face, we look at this parable and we all say to ourselves, oh, the parable is clear. We know what it means. We know what Christ is teaching us. That, that this, that the kingdom of heaven is, uh, that what Jesus is teaching us is the value of the kingdom of heaven. Absolutely. And some of us may go on to say, yes, and it's the cost of discipleship. Jesus is teaching all of us what it costs to be a part of this kingdom. And there have been many powerful gospel sermons preached on that interpretation of this parable. I myself have preached in that same vein before, and you can actually go on uh, your Chalcedon's website and find our Chalcedon sermon audio page and find that sermon. But this morning, I want to unfold another aspect of this parable that that I really spent A lot of time praying over and developing because I think it's obvious from the context of the whole teaching of Christ and what is being impressed upon us in this one verse that we need to take into account. That is the aspect of redemptive history. That is the aspect of the, the kingdom of God, even in its beginning days up until the time of Christ where it is being revealed in its fullest extent. And yet, even while Christ is alive, it is still not come right into that, into that harmony and the power that it will have when Christ is raised from the dead the first thing we need to point out or at least we need to consider in the parable is the value of the kingdom is seen in the first part of the verse when it says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Before the man finds the treasure, it had been hidden. It had been put there. It had been concealed. Now, what's the purpose of concealing treasure? Why would there be treasure hidden in a field? Well, Jesus completely understands that he is using common, ordinary events to teach on the kingdom of heaven. And it was very common in that day when households or individuals had riches or possessions or jewelry or coinage, things that they wanted to protect that they did not want just lying around the house or sitting under a table or on a shelf somewhere. They would only use a small portion for their daily activities and they would go hide the rest of it in a field. They would bury it. It may be in a box. It could be in a simple clay jar. If you remember, or let me bring to your remembrance, um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. When that shepherd boy cast that rock and it found its way into the mouth of that cave and it broke a clay jar, what was in the clay jar? Well, the scriptures Copies of the scriptures. They had housed that papyri in clay jars. And so it was a very common practice for people to hide their wealth in these containers and put them in a field where they could go and retrieve what they needed when they needed it. Now, why? Well, well, beloved, I mean, there are several reasons. I think the first one is that homes weren't as secure then as they are today. There was some security, but that, that, it was very minimal. And it was not hard to break into a common home in that day and time. It was very simple, very easy to do. And it was a common practice. Thievery was a a a, a It was a big uh, problem even in Jesus' day. Uh, We've got the parable of the wheat and the tares, corporate espionage. Why? Because it was very common for there to be a battle of landowners and some of the crooked criminal types would pay Uh, you know, unsavory characters to go out and sow their competitions filled with poisonous wheat so that they would have to bear the expense of separating all of that. And, and, And so that was common. Not only were dwellings not that secure, but tax collectors were notorious for getting a little extra. If you had it in your possession, it was not uncommon for a tax collector certainly to get what you owed the magistrate, but a little more for himself. And that's one of the reasons that tax collectors were so despised among the Jews. And if you had it lying around, the chances of him taking it were very real. You remember in Luke 19, Zacchaeus, remember when Zacchaeus confesses Uh, salvation in Jesus Christ, what does he confess? He goes, I have paid back restitution four times. Now listen, he's not saying i paid back what I've collected for the magistrate. He's saying I've paid back what I took on top of the magistrate, what I stole. Because you have to remember the tax collectors had the, well, the power of the sword behind them and they could intimidate the people to give more or else well it's not just the dwellings weren't secure. the the the, the, the tax collectors were uh, typically crooked uh, power hungry and uh uh envious of wealth um lust for wealth but even uh soldiers they're you might remember when Jesus is giving um, advice, and he says, "Listen, if a soldier comes and tells you to carry his pack a mile, I think that was the rule at that time he says jesus says don't just carry it a mile, carry it two miles you know get him get him get him away, take him away from." your dwelling and it was not uncommon and it was a very common it was not uncommon so it's a common practice that a soldier would not only get someone to carry their pack but to take any money they would have on them so it it was just a, a bad situation so a way for them to maintain their family wealth if you will is for them to take and hide it away now that's the picture this man, we are, he's not identified in the text, but I'm going to give you my um, thoughts on him in a moment of who I believe that he is, as well as the treasure. A man is doing business in the field. He don't, we don't know what kind of business he's doing there, but he finds this treasure It is so much that this man, according to Jewish law, goes back and he sells everything because Jewish law says whoever owned the field owned the treasure in the field. And so in order for him to possess the treasure, he had to possess the field. And he goes and he sells everything he has. He leaves nothing out. to own this field so that he might possess the treasure the text tells us that which the man found it, he hid again he hides it away so that he can have enough time to go and liquidate all of his assets and come back and purchase the field so that that treasure would still be there when he however long it took him to liquidate his house and his guns and fishing poles and her jewelry and whatever the case may be. It would take some time to do so in order for him to be able to possess the field. But notice in that last uh, part of the verse it says, and from joy over it, Jesus gives us a, 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 a little... Glimpse of what we're actually to consider here when he says it's the joy over what is found that possesses this man. It possesses him to lead him, to, to liquidate all of his assets to go buy this field so that he can possess the treasure. It was the joy that he experienced in finding the treasure that led him to do what we might consider a very, well, um, Oh, I want to say the word crazy. That's a little general. Um, but someone who seems to be, you know, easily uh, led to do something else. I, and there's a word that starts with a P, I can't think of it. I hope you have it in your mind. But he's just he's just impulsive. He got he's got to have, he's got to possess this. Treasure. Now, let's begin to determine what is being said here. We've got the picture. We understand the parable. And, and let me say this as I begin to unfold the meaning of this parable. Notice that after Jesus does this, after he gives them this, this last triplet of parables, notice what he says when he comes down to verse 23. Um, uh, let's see. Verse 51, I'm sorry. Verse 51, he says, now, have you understood all these things? That is, after Jesus teaches them these three parables, he asks the good question, do you understand? And of course, they did. And he says in verse 52, and he says, and Jesus said to him, therefore, that is because you understand these things, Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out his treasure things new and old Now I think there's some clues here What is this treasure Is it the gospel Is it truth A synonym for the gospel? Is it Jesus Christ? And that's some two common interpretations of the treasure. But there's another interpretation of the treasure that I will impress upon your hearing this morning, and that is the treasure is the church. The church. Now, in support of this interpretation, what I want to bring to you is not only did Jesus ask them the question, but if you remember, they had already asked him once, what does this mean? He they had already asked him as they retired that evening or late in the afternoon as they as they as Jesus withdrew from his teaching of the crowds and he had gone into a private setting and the disciples came to them remember they asked him what did you mean by the parable of the tares and he gave them the interpretation in verse 38 our uh, verse 37, he says, and he said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now we've already heard a similar description about the parable of the sower being who? Well, the son of man. But notice verse 37, and the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, or 38, and the field is the world. And as, as As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. Now, beloved, I believe the treasure can be easily understood as the church and the man that found the treasure being Christ, the Son of Man. You say, well, wait a minute. Pastor, you said you preached that. The cost of discipleship is that we forsake everything, that we we give up these possessions in order to follow Jesus Christ. In fact, we have the words of Christ saying, lest you give up these things, you cannot be my disciple. I know, amen, that's true. But what I want to submit to you this morning is why is that true? Why are you to be willing to forsake everything and follow after Christ? Now, let that sink in. Dwell on that for a second. Why should we be so willing to liquidate Every meaningful thing in our lives and follow after Christ. I mean, I'm not even addressing yet, have you done so? I'm assuming it, I'm assuming that action has happened. I'm assuming that there is a mind that is present here this morning in each of us that says nothing can stand in the way of my blessed Savior, nothing. Not family, not wife, not husband, not children, not hobby, nor interest, nothing. That is, if I have to make a choice and decision to follow Christ or else, I follow Christ. What's the ground of that? I mean, this is where I believe that interpretation breaks down if we're not careful. And that is, beloved, listen, why is the church precious? Why is the kingdom of God precious? Because we gather? Because we've just determined it to be so? Because it's in many countries and it's in a lot of places. I mean, there's churches everywhere, so therefore it's valuable because there's a lot of it. I don't think so on any of those. You see, beloved, what makes the kingdom of God precious is that God has placed his interest and love upon it. The parable tells us that the treasure had been hidden, concealed. The word means to conceal or to keep secret. And this is where I believe there is a a thread of redemptive history. Remember, Jesus is sitting with his disciples. He's been unfolding the kingdom. He's preparing them to do something. He says, you need to understand how the kingdom of God comes into this world. But you also need to understand that for ages and for generations, God has concealed the kingdom of God. In the beginning, God started with all of mankind. And what happened in those first 11 chapters of our history, there were epic failures. There was the fall of Adam, eating the tree of the, from the knowledge of good and evil that he was told not to eat of. There was the, uh, the, the world rebellion against the kingdom of God, and therefore the Lord flooded the whole earth. There was the Tower of Babel. Again, how did the kingdom of God become so obscured and so small when God had given them his commandments? Notice in all of these, there's the violation of his commandments. They're not bearing the fruit thereof, other than in the flood, eight, right? So what does God do? God begins now to to impress upon the world his kingdom through one named Abraham. And he creates for himself a nation, a people. And then you have this nation that God created in order to preserve the kingdom of heaven. Heaven. It's sort of tucked away. It's concealed. Yes, there's still light. Yes, there are still the gospel. Yes, we know people traveled to Israel and Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of Solomon and whatnot. But for the most part, where do we see the kingdom of God? In a nation. And Jesus comes and he begins to what? Make known the kingdom of heaven. In his very opening sermon, what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he just begins to open up the kingdom of God. He begins to, 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 to call back, if you will those wayward israelites because remember they had gone astray again over and over and over they would go astray they had they had gone astray again they had gone into babylon god had put them in babylon to teach them a lesson he had brought some back to uh, Jerusalem, and now Jesus has come hundreds of years, 400 years later, and now they're preaching. He's preaching the kingdom of heaven with the forerunner of John the Baptist. And he's opening up the kingdom of heaven to them, and that's the Sermon on the Mount. But there's a surprise who is it that rejects the kingdom? Children of Abraham. Who were the enemies of the disciples? Who were the ark arch- Who were the enemies of Jesus Christ? The Pharisees. And what did Jesus tell them? Well, Jesus went on to say, listen, yes, you're my enemy, but you're not my enemy because you're my arch enemy. Satan is my arch enemy and you are of him. That's why you're his children. You're his children because you do the will of your father who is the devil. What was it that Jesus found? And I believe he's opening up to The disciples, and he's showing them the expansion of the kingdom of heaven in the incorporation of the Gentiles, teaching him that this kingdom is a kingdom of faith. It's a kingdom that is obtained by faith. Those who believe and trust in Christ. Notice in your Bibles, turn to uh, Matthew 8. Matthew 8, look at verse 2, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. What did Jesus tell him to do? Conceal this. My time has not yet come. And the man finds this treasure. He finds the church. He he conceals it again. Why? Because in Jesus' ministry, what is he doing? He's preparing himself to give all that he has for this treasure. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though, verse 9, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Turn from there to Philippians chapter 2. You, again, you see this idea of this humility of Jesus Christ, of him uh, in one sense robing himself, taking upon himself the, the nature of a man and in doing so becoming what? In, impoverished. In verse 8 of Philippians 2, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He took the form of a servant, verse 7, being made in the likeness of man. Psalm chapter 8 tells us how Jesus was made a little lower than the angels in his humanity that there was a divestment of this glory that Jesus possessed, but that when he became a man, he would have to humble himself and take upon himself all of those infirmities that belong to, well, man, but even sinful man. All of the, the hunger, the poverty, the sickness, the pain of the flesh, He felt, brothers and sisters, he felt the nails go in his body. He felt the the spear. He he felt the the plucking out of his beard. He felt the thorns upon his head. He knew what it was like to be sleep deprived. He knew what it was like to be so overcome with, with, with emotion In prayer, that the Bible tells us in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweat, as it were, drops of blood, anguish. Those are things that do not belong or are becoming to the God of glory. And yet, here he is in possession of those infirmities. And beloved, why is it, why is it that when we talk about the value of the kingdom and that we would see its value, the first thing we need to recognize is that our God has so valued his own kingdom that from the very beginning he has concealed and preserved and hidden and brought about at the right time, Paul says, at the very precision of time, in the right moment, he brought forth Jesus Christ. He found it and hid it again. Jesus is coming. Turn to, again, one more passage, and one more, and that we might establish this idea. In, in uh, Matthew 15, and verse 28, well, now this is the Syrophoenician woman. Verse 22 tells us that she is a Canaanite, not a, not someone the Jews saw as a pleasant person whatsoever. They held great animosity against the Canaanites. As you read the Old Testament and you know why. You got to remember the Canaanite history, they were a very immoral people, immoral. The Canaanite woman, verse 22, from that region came out and began to cry out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter's cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word and his disciples came and implored him saying, send her away because, well, because she keeps shouting at us. And he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let that sink in. And she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, but even the dog's feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Now, Jesus' response in verse 28 is to what I want you to focus on. Now, remember, he has not found faith in Israel. All he's found is ridicule and opposition. In verse 28, Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, your faith is great and it shall be done for you as you wish and her daughter was healed at once and brothers and sisters I believe that this is what the parable of the hidden treasure is speaking of here Jesus begins to conceal that treasure again until he lays down his life but what's the surprise what's the joy set before him The joy set before the treasure is that now even the Gentiles who were separate from this kingdom concealed in the Old Testament is now coming. And he says, not only are they coming, I haven't seen such faith even among the Israelites. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm getting, a, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I want you to see this text and then we're going to go to one more parable that will seal the deal. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who... Who, who's the who referring to? Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, what? Endured the cross. Why did he endure the cross? Why did he endure the humility? Why did he suffer the violence, the mockery? Why did he suffer the shame? Why did he go and, and, and lay a, if you were, Veil his glory, his Godhood for a moment of time to, to walk as a man on this earth, to be ridiculed, to have to learn his catechism, to have to learn to read, to have to learn to write for the joy set before him that he would receive the reward, the inheritance of God's elect that would encompass both Jew and Gentile. Matthew 21. I'll read this passage and then we'll make some application and be finished up for this morning. Matthew 21, verse 33, it's the parable of the landowner. Again, Jesus continually is faced with opposition and challenges and now he teaches a parable. He says, listen to the parable to another parable. There was a landowner who was had planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. That sounds like protection, doesn't it? That's why they hid the field, the treasure in the field the first time was to what? Protect it from being stolen. Verse 34 When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive the produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir come let's kill him and seize his inheritance and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him therefore when the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to those vine growers and he said to them he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at that proper at the proper seasons now they've heard this parable What does Jesus say in verse 42? And Jesus said to them further, saying, Did you never read the scriptures, the stones which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone shall be broken to pieces, and whenever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard this, his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Beloved, why is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, valuable? Because God has placed his love on it. God has protected it. He has preserved it. And now in Christ, who has come as a man in the flesh of men to lay down his life that he might give to us his righteousness as he has taken to himself our sins and now he has brought forth all of the treasures of his house, both new and old. It is precious, beloved, and it is costly because look at what the kingdom of heaven costs God. And now you have to ask the question, If it's worth so much to God, what's it worth to you and me? What's it worth? God has shown us, listen, this is the fifth commandment. What's the duty of a superior? Our catechism says the duty of a superior is to be an example for the inferiors. Did not our God demonstrate the value of his kingdom, even in this parable? Has he not done it throughout history? Has he not even paid the price for us? Brothers and sisters, the joy you and I possess today is predicated and founded upon the joy that God has in us, his elect. That God As the book of Ephesians says, because it pleased God. Why did God love? It pleased God to love us. It pleased God to save us. It pleased God to sanctify us. It pleased God. We're called His bride, a special treasure. Exodus, God says, You are my special possession. If He, listen, it's not enough, beloved that he sees the church as a special possession. We have to see him as our special possession. You and I have to be willing to be and emulate God and forsake whatever is needed and necessary to be in the kingdom of heaven. To obey the commandments of God, to love him, to cherish him, to see Christ not as a stumbling block. And and that's where the disobedient find themselves. Psalm 2, why do the kings rage? Why? Because they don't want God's commandments. I don't want to obey him. I want to do my own thing. I want to do it my own way. They want to take off the commandments. They're burdensome to the guilty. They're burdensome to the unrepentant. They're burdensome to the, to the sons and daughters of darkness. But the commandments to the children of God are delight and joy and peace and the joy that is set before us. Oh, praise God that I can obey my master with joy because he has worked the kingdom of God in my heart. The church is God's prized possession. And because the church is God's prized possession, beloved, he should be your prized Savior. You love those who have done the most for you, right? Right? And that that whole, that, that what we build marriages on is Sacrifice. And before you go thinking, you've done way too much for the kingdom of heaven. Before you pat yourself on the back and beat your chest about all that you do in the kingdom of God, you need to look to heaven and see our Savior's scars. You need to see that our Savior bears the very scars of him coming and taking ownership of that field and redeeming that treasure. He's our example. And he leads us by example. And brothers and sisters, I can impress upon you more this morning than I'm telling you the value of God's kingdom is first seen in God's thoughts about that kingdom, what God was willing to do to purchase that kingdom and the joy set before him to purchase that kingdom. And now we need to emulate him and forsake all and follow him and possess and be the possessors of that kingdom. What is it, beloved, that you would hold back or withhold? Is there something in your life that you are willing to withhold in possession of Christ? What is your soul worth? What is your joy worth? What is happiness worth? The true stuff, not the fake stuff. The real stuff. The real joy. What's it worth? Because if anything that you're willing to leave out, it only demonstrates you really don't understand the value of your own soul because you don't even see the same value that God sees in it. Let's follow God's advice. Let's follow his practice. Let's emulate him. Let's forsake all for the saving of our own souls. Let's pray. Now, Father, we have looked at this parable and we have, I believe, struck at the root of it. You are a great God, a saving God. Lord, a God who has preserved your oracles in a people for generations. And now that when Christ had come, you had opened it up to the whole world. The prophet Isaiah said, I shall set a great light among the nations. We praise God, Lord, that you have come to seek us out and to save us. Father, we pray that as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, we would be mindful and we would calculate, we would organize, we would, Lord, collect our thoughts to ponder. What is it, O oh Lord, that we have withheld, O oh Lord? Why is, even if our joy this morning has diminished, what has caused it? And let us be willing to forsake those That sin are sins that have diminished and caused the treasure to grow dim. And Father, let's prepare ourselves and prepare us to come in fellowship with your blessed Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.